All right, hey, children, the children's are in here. Raise your hand if you're the children's and you're in here. I just need, I need to know, it's important, I need to know where you're at. Yes, this is believable. Okay, good. Okay, so two things. First of all, I'm Pastor Ben. If we've not met before, and I've met most of you, but there's, if you're filling in the sheet and ask who's talking, Pastor Ben, that's your man. I'm not the legit guy, I'm the guy that shows up when the legit guy goes on vacation, okay? Pastor Ben goes in the bubble. Secondly, I'm so glad you guys are here because I need your help. The truth is, the part of the Bible that we're talking about today is Matthew 24 and 25. And sometimes as adults, we don't get this one quite right. We, we get it a little bit messed up. So I think you guys are going to be able to help me. You, can you guys help me out? If I ask you to help me, do you think you can help me? What, what is that the level of, yeah, you know, we might be able to, is there a few bucks in it for me? Okay. All right. So no, I need your help. Listen, this is important. Okay. I need your help. So uh, you guys speak Greek, right? The kids? No. Greek? Yeah? What? No? No Greek. Well, shoot, this is going to be a little bit more difficult than I'd imagined. I'd kind of been hinging on that you guys do the Greek. Okay, here's the deal. I'm going to teach you some Greek, okay? And then uh, I'm going to teach you the words, and there will be certain times where I need you to repeat them back to me so that we can help keep our scripture right. Can you guys do that for me? If I teach it to you, do you think you can repeat it back to me at the right time? Yes, the answer is yes. That's what you want to do. Okay, so uh, there's, there's two Greek words that you guys are going to help me out with. Um, the first one is... Suntalea. Now, can you guys say, this, everybody can say this. Say the word Suntalea. Somebody said Suntababa. You can't just say whatever you want to say. Okay? We have to use the words that I give you. The word is Suntalea. Try it again. That's what I'm talking about. Give that thing some gusto. All right. So the word Suntalea means the end. But it has a specific meaning of the end. It means the end of the world. Okay? Jesus will use this same description. When Jesus is about to leave the earth, he's going to ascend and go into heaven. He says, He's talking to his disciples. He says, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. And that's the word he uses. Suntalea. Okay, even to the end of the world. Okay, one more time. Suntalea. Okay, very good. All right, your second word is telos. Telos. Say the word telos. Telos. Telos, right? It says telephone, but you got lazy and only said a little bit of it. Telos. Now, here's, here's the tricky part. Telos also means end. See what I'm saying? Now we got two words that both mean the end. But telos means something different. It means the end of a process or the end of an event. It's not the end of everything. Okay? When, um, when Matthew, who's the writer of this particular section of Scripture, um, is describing the end of Jesus' trial, this is the word he uses. Okay? It's the telos, the end of an event, the end of a process. All right. So we need, to keep those, we need to keep those straight as we're talking through this section of the Bible. So, let's see. Kids over... All right, you guys, you guys are pretty strong, right? Looks like we got a lot of kids over here. Just... Without screaming your neighbor's ear off, can you give me a hey that's loud but not yelling? One, two, three, go. Okay, now I need you guys to do it. One, two, three, go. (laughs) I'm going to group you two guys together. (laughs) And adults, you guys might have to help out. We're a little bit low in the enthusiasm column over here. You guys are rocking it. Your table, you guys are over here, okay? So you guys are telos. Okay? When I say the word end, and if I point to you, you're telos. Okay? You need to, so I say the word end, and I, say, and I point over here, you guys are going to say telos, because we're going to remember that that's the end of a process or an event. Okay? You guys. Can I amp it up, all right? Get the coffee going. You guys can drink the coffee. It's all right. All right. So if I say the word end, and I point over here, you guys are our suntalea. Okay? You guys got it? You're suntalea. You guys are the telos. We got it? Okay. I think we're good to go. All right. So we need to get started. Um... Two other things to keep in mind before we get going. The first one is, God wrote a whole Bible, right? He didn't just write a New Testament, He wrote also an Old Testament. 
But one of the things we need to keep in mind as we're going through this section of Scripture is that God speaks the same way. In fact, um, a lot of times God talks in circles. We expect Him to kind of say the same things over and over again and mean similar things. Okay, so as we're reading, we're going to see ways that God has spoken before. And frankly, it's going to sound like the world is over. But God has using that language before and it didn't mean that. So we're going to keep an eye on what the Old Testament says. And we need to understand our New Testament by understanding what the Old Testament says. Because that's just as much a part of God's story, right? We can't just ignore good old Moses. Man floated in a basket, did cool things. We can't write him off. We have to keep that stuff in mind. Okay? Secondly, we have to stay in context. Now, do you guys know what context means? Okay, good. Enthusiasm. I love it. So here's, here's an example of context. And I really need three people, but I only have two hands. So here's how this is going to work. Okay? This is a guy. This is a guy. This is a guy. We all, we all got so far on my, my example of a dude? All right. So he says, hey, man, would you like some broccoli? No way. I don't want any. Why don't you want any chocolate? I didn't say I didn't want chocolate. I said I didn't want broccoli. You said you didn't want any. Now, hold on a second. This guy's confused, right? Because I was responding to the broccoli guy. But he was talking about chocolate. He didn't understand the context in which I said, I don't want any. Does that help? When we're saying context, we're saying, I said something about one thing, but you thought I was talking about something else. That's what we mean when we say context. So we've got to be careful to keep what we're talking about in context and keep talking about or understanding what they're actually saying. We can't just think it to mean something different. All right, we're all good? We're good with our groundwork? It's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long day. Take a breath. No. All right. Here we go. This is, um, now, let's talk about that context. Here's what's happening. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus comes into the temple. And for kids, so the temple, think of it like a church. But it's the place where God said, I will be here. My presence will be here. It's a cool thing because it's where heaven, if heaven is up here and earth is what God created down here, the temple is a place where heaven and earth kind of come together. Where God's presence is dwelling on earth. Okay? So Jesus comes into this temple and he, say, and he basically turns over all the things that they're doing, the sacrifices that they're making to try to atone for their sins. And, and they're saying, look, this is done. This isn't doing what I, what I designed it to do. And there's people that are leading it aren't leading it correctly. So you know what? It's done. And he's, he's judging. He's saying, I'm the one who can say whether this works anymore or not. And I'm saying that it doesn't. And that's what Jesus did in chapter 21. Then he spent some time talking about these leaders that were in this, this temple, this church. And he said, look, you're not doing a good job either. You're, you're hypocrites or you're, you're acting one way and, and telling the people to do something different. And I'm not standing for it anymore. That's done. Everything is coming through me. From now on, that's what we're going to do. Okay, so he's he's at the end of talking to those guys. It's in the concept of this of this temple talk. Okay, that he's going to say the following. This is at the end of Matthew chapter twenty three, and um, I don't have scripture up here today, so you're going to have to follow along on your phone or your Bible if you um, if you want to do anything more than listen. But Jesus says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem!" That's the city that he's in, and the city that the temple is in. And he says, "The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it." How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? That's a cool thing. Jesus says, I want to bring you in. I want to bring you close. But then he says, but you were not willing. You didn't want to come closer to me, to Jesus. Okay? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is we said that temple, that church, that's God's house, right? But what did he just call it? He said, no, that's your house. I'm gone. I'm not there anymore. And it's, and it's desolate. That word means empty. Okay? It's, I'm not there anymore. And so he's, he's, he's said, I'm not associated with this anymore. Your house is left. It belongs to you now and it's empty. Okay? He's basically said, We're not, I, I, we don't believe in this system anymore. Okay? Things are coming through me. That's the context in which Jesus is talking. 
Okay, and we have to remember that, that that's what he's talking about as we start going through the scripture. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. When you leave the temple, here's a picture of, of kind of what the view would look like, is the temple was high up on a mountain, okay? Now, to get to the Mount of Olives, which is real close to it, you do this. Down into the valley, Kidron Valley, and then back up into the Mount of Olives. Actually, that went different. It should go down, right? I can't do, I can't do it right. Okay, that's what I wanted. Things I didn't practice before I got here. Okay? Yeah, so you're coming, you're coming from the temple, you go down into the Kidron Valley, you come back up, and then you stand here, and this is the Mount of Olives, and you look back at the temple. Now, this is a modern, there would have been taller buildings here, and it would have been pretty magnificent to look at back in that day. And they said, Jesus just said these really harsh things about the temple, and they go, hey, Jesus, but look, the buildings are so beautiful. How could you tear down such a thing? They're so nice. And, and Jesus' response is to say, you see all of these, do you? He points at them and says, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's not only am I gone, but the whole thing's going down. This one stone will not be stacked upon another. You can't have a building if you don't have stones stacked upon another, right? That's what he's saying. Okay? This, he's condemning the temple, said it's done for. And that's the, again, context of which the following occurs. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this happen? When will these things be? Now, if he said the temple's going to fall and they say, tell us when these things will be, what do we think he's talking about? It's got to be the temple, right? When will these things, you said the temple is going to be destroyed. It's not one stone upon the other. When will that, that happen? Okay, that's what they're asking. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end? What happened? What happened? We're taking a nap over here. Okay, it's Suntale. And the end of the age. Okay? They're asking, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the end of the world? They've, they've put those two things together because if the temple is the place where heaven and earth intersect, where God's presence is, and Jesus is saying it will be destroyed, the right thought is, well, then it must be the end of the world. This is where we go to sacrifice. This is where our community is at. This is where God's presence is. We, it's got to be the end of the world. That's their question. Make sense? Okay, Your temple is going to be destroyed soon to late. It's got to be the end of the world. Watch how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered them. See that, no, actually here, let's, let's look at the breakdown here. Actually, I have a breakdown of this. Let's look at this. So here's what they're asking, and then here's what they are going to, um, here's what they're, Jesus is actually going to do, okay? When he says these things, he's talking about the end of, the, end of the, uh, the destruction of the temple, okay? And they conflate those two things because they think that when the temple is destroyed, uh, it must be the end of the world. Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to separate their question into two different answers. Okay, one is concerning the destruction of the temple and one is concerning the end of the age. What they think is going to happen at the same time, he says, no, they're two separate things. The destruction of the temple will have clear signs that precede it. He's going to give them. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you can expect. The temple will be destroyed. While the end of the world will have no signs that you're not going to know when it's coming. The two of those things are going to be separated by a significant length of time. And both will be described with new creation language. Something new is being birthed. Not only when the temple is destroyed, because God is interacting with his people in a different way. Okay? And he speaks of it as if it's a new creation. It refers to his birth pains. And then when the world, when he comes back for the second time, same thing. It's a whole new creation. And in our instance, a restored creation. Okay, so let's, now let's see how he starts describing these things. He's going to separate these. He's going to answer them differently. He says, he answers them. See that no one leads you astray. Now, let's stop right there. He, who asked the question? Do you guys remember? It was the disciples, right? 
The disciples asked the question. And he says, see that no one leads you astray. Who is he talking to? Me? 2,000 years later, me? No. The disciples asked the question. That's who he's answering. See that no one leads you astray. And then he's going to describe it. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. This is going to be a common theme. And this is part of what we need to be able to take from his description on the destruction of the temple. Okay? It's he's, many people are going to say, I am Jesus. And he said, be careful. Be, do not be led astray. Trust in me. Trust in what I've told you. Okay? So he's talking to them. Many will saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end... Tell us. But the end, tell us, is not yet. That's not Suntaleya. He's not saying, describing this associated with the end of the world, right? It's associated with a process or an event. In context, it's probably the destruction of the temple. Okay? This is where ends become important. You guys, were pre- well, you guys weren't exactly on your game, all right? Be prepared for the next one. All right. Uh, you hear wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, one of the things that I think we need to do is if I said that these are related to the destruction of the temple, the question is, is this true? Did this happen leading up to the destruction of the temple? Okay, let's see if we can answer that question. The first one is, he says, many will come in my name. Were there other people that were claiming to be the Messiah between Christ's death and around 8030 or 8033 before the temple was destroyed in 8070? The answer is a firm yes. Absolutely there were. Jerome, who was the first guy to translate the New Testament from Greek into a different language called Latin, it's called the Vulgate, Jerome wrote that and he said that there were at least three different factions of people who claimed to be the Messiah in Jerusalem at the time that this temple is destroyed. Okay? So were there people claiming to be Christ? Yes. And it makes sense because all, when the Jewish people were feeling oppressed, okay, they feel like they weren't being treated well and they wanted this redemption to come, this promised Messiah to show up, okay, that's when Messiahs came. Because they could influence the people. When people are downtrodden, they really like to listen to people who say, hey, I can change your circumstance. Things can be different. We can fight. Okay? That's when messiahs show up. It happened quite a bit between uh, Christ's death and the destruction of the temple. So did, did many come in him, his name trying to, to lead them astray? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay? Next, he says that there will be... Um, rumors of wars. We're good there. Famines and earthquakes? Is that right? Is that my next one? No, wars and rumors of wars. All right. Okay. So, throughout the, are there wars on the empire between Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple? Yes. Definitely. Uh, Rome was constantly at war with the Parthians to the east. Okay. Uh, the Parthians were pretty cool. They used to ride in on horseback. Okay. And then they would ride back out, but the horse would be going this way, and I would be facing this way, and they would kind of shoot arrows sitting on the, on the butt of the horse but shoot backwards. It was very difficult to deal with. Okay? Parthians were the only uh, nation that Rome continually fought and never conquered. That was happening. You see the near destruction of that same temple in AD 39. There was, you know, here's what's the deal. If, you have, if God has a temple, an area where he, he goes in, um, the Jews were very specific that said, you can't bring statues of other gods in here. That makes sense, right? We worship Jesus in here. You can't just bring in some random picture of some other god. Okay? Caligula, who was a guy that ruled Rome during that time, tried to do that very thing. He said, you know what would be cool? A picture of Zeus, who was a Greek god, and, and me. Let's just put those two together and let's put this in the temple. That'll be cool. Okay? And the Jews fought that hard and it didn't end up happening. But had it happened, that temple would have been destroyed a lot earlier. Okay? That, it, it wouldn't have survived AD 39. Between 68 and 69, which is one year before the temple was destroyed, Rome goes through four emperors. Now the thing is, is if you're going through leadership... In real quick succession, that's because there's instability in your country. Okay? 
So these, these four emperors that were in Rome during this time, like uh, uh, Vitellius killed Otho. All right, so there's, there's like a, this is not good. Okay, this is not good. There's instability in the empire. There's constant threat of war. Was this happening before the destruction of the temple? Yeah. Yes, this is happening before the destruction of the temple. Next was earthquakes and famines. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but there were plenty of recorded earthquakes during this time that were devastating. The, uh, there were three cities, cities we should recognize uh, biblically, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, which were destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60. So much so that they couldn't pay taxes for five years and the Roman government had to give them money to rebuild. Okay? So uh, there were plenty of earthquakes. There was a massive famine, especially in Jerusalem. This is one of the things that they're fleeing from. Um, uh, keep this less than graphic. So pe- people are um, gnawing on leather. They don't have anything else to eat but leather. There's, uh, adults will get this, there's cannibalism. There's, um, Josephus records uh, a mother and a, son and a child um, and that circumstance. It was a nasty, nasty time. Okay? Those things happened before... Uh, the destruction of the temple. As a matter of fact, that 60, um, 66 to 70, just before the destruction of the temple, that's a lot of that stuff was happening and caused by the Jews themselves um, trying to kind of force the issue of the, of the battle with Rome. So were those things happening for the destruction of the temple? Absolutely. Absolutely they were. Okay? Um, and then it says, For they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Who's the you? Is it me? Or is it the disciples who he's talking to? It's got to be the disciples who he's talking to. Okay? It will put you to death. Does this happen to the disciples? Let's read on just a little bit and then we'll come back to that. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end... I lost the kids, didn't I? It's a rough scripture. I'm with you. Tell us. It's a tell us. Okay, that's not Sintalea. Okay, the one who endures to the end of the process, okay, will uh, will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end, telos, will come. Not Sintalea, still telos, event. Okay, all right. So let's talk about were were the disciples who he was talking to were they put to death for uh, for the name of Jesus? Yes. Yes, that's them, that's not us. They were. Every disciple was killed for their belief in Christ. Except for John. Well, John ultimately dies an old man, but they tried to boil him in a vat of oil in the middle of the Colosseum in Rome, and it didn't work. And so they put him on an island and said, stay away from other people, you seem dangerous. Okay? So that, that's what happens to John. Everybody else dies for the name of Christ. Is this happening? This, is this happening prior to the destruction of the temple? Absolutely. This is the same warning. Okay? This is the same warning that happens in Matthew chapter 10, he says the exact same thing. Be careful. This is what's going to happen as you take my word out. Okay? Many will fall away. That happens. The lawlessness. And he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here's the question. Okay? Because a lot of times what we think that is is say, Well, Jesus will not return, because then again, we, we treat this as a suntaleia when it's a telos. But we say, Everybody needs to hear the gospel, otherwise Christ will not return. I like the thought that we're going to hold off what Jesus is going to do because we don't tell Chuck. Okay, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But let's, let's, uh, some of that comes from language when we say whole world. Okay? If we talk about that it will come to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, we think whole world, our perspective, whole world, right? This, all these countries that we can pick off on a globe. But that, that isn't generally what the New Testament writers are saying. Okay? They're not talking about whole world in that same regard. Here's an example. In Luke 2.1, um, this is just before Jesus is, uh, the description of Jesus' birth. Okay? And it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
Now, here's the deal. Caesar Augustus doesn't rule the whole world. He rules Rome. What he means is get account of everybody in the inhabited world or in my kingdom. Okay, that's what I want to know. When he says whole world, that's what he's talking about. Okay? And so when they say whole world here, we probably shouldn't have in mind a whole world as in what we think of it. Okay? A whole world is their thinking. Now, the question is, is that, does another biblical writer agree with that? And was this fulfilled? Was the gospel spread to the whole world from that perspective? Look at Romans 1.8. This is our friend Paul. Okay, our good buddy Saul, then Paul. And he says, Longing to go to Rome first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in oikomene, all the world. All the world. Does, does Paul think that the thing Jesus is talking about has been fulfilled? Yeah. Paul dies in the mid-60s. This happened before the destruction of the temple. Okay? All of this is still culminating in, this seems to be destruction of the temple stuff. Okay, I, that really the, the, the stuff I really want to talk about is in the back half of Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25. But I'm spending a little time here because I want to make sure we're careful. One of the risks that we run is that we read the Bible with a newspaper in our hand. And we say, hey, an earthquake happened. I wonder if the end is coming. Okay? You, know, you know who felt that earthquake? The guy that was living near there. You know who didn't? Your brothers and sisters in Christ that are three worlds away. They have no idea. We've got to be careful that we're not trying, A, to predict something that Jesus said not to predict, but B... Using our experiences. Hey, we're not having wars and rumors of wars, so we must not be near the end times. Really? There's been countries that have had war without end for the last century. When your brothers and sisters in Christ live there, and you're telling me because we're not under a war that that doesn't count, there's some blindness there. We have to be careful. We have to be careful how we read the scripture. We have to be careful on whose perspective we're stealing. Usually, if we're taking this as the end of the world, we're stealing the disciples' perspective. But we're also kind of throwing a hand up at the, at the person that's in Africa somewhere who's had an earthquake and wars since they can remember. And we're like, yeah, but the tribulation hasn't started here, so must not be. You see where we can be blind there? You see where we run a risk there? All right. And then the end will come, end of a process. All right. Abomination of desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the house stop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now here's the question. If this is actually the end of the world, why would he say never will be? Seems like an unnecessary distinction. That would be the end, right? He's not talking about the end of the world here. Pray that your flight may not be in winter on Sabbath, uh, great tribulation. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See what he's hammering home? A lot of this has to do with the temple. We can't necessarily take this with us. But the concern, the concern about being led astray about reading the wrong things or listening to the wrong people and being taken out of what Jesus is actually saying, that's a relevant concern for us. It's a relevant concern for us. Okay, don't believe it if people say, there's Christ, there he is. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All right, so let's, let's dissect a little bit of this. So the abomination of desolation is difficult. Okay? Smart people that love Jesus disagree on what this is. But here's the thing. I, this is where we're, we're going to land for the sake of what we can talk about today. 
Um, it's something that Jesus was anticipating and Luke seems to describe. And Luke 21, 20 says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Did we just hear that description from Matthew? All he did, all Luke did was substitute an actual description of what was happening Okay, as opposed to just saying abomination and desolation. You know what's interesting? is When Daniel describes this, the abomination of desolation, it's plural. Abominations of desolation. Okay? Because, frankly, there's something that very much sniffs like this that happened in 160 BC. So, this is what we're going to assume is he's working with here. We can disagree on this, okay? Loving people, guys who love Jesus, smart people can disagree on this. This is what we're going to run with for today, is that it's when um, armies surround Jerusalem. Are there events around the destruction of the temple that fit this? Yes. Yes. There's an army that surrounds Jerusalem in AD 66 that gets all the way up to the temple gate and then for some reason decides to leave. Decides to leave. It was basically after that point when the real tribulation started with the the fighting between the Jews and Rome. It happened in multiple different places. Um, They basically went from there and the Rome went up to Galilee, started trouble there. The Jews fled back to Jerusalem and that's kind of where the crux of the fight came from. Um, in between that time frame of 66 to 70. So like, are there events in time that would make sense as abomination of desolation? Yeah. Yeah, leading up to the destruction of the temple, yes, it certainly can. But at the end, he warns this. He says, um, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So here's what's interesting, is I think he's, he's saying, I know that you're thinking these things are the end of the world. I've made a case okay, that, it, that it's not, that this has to do with the destruction of the temple. But just so we're clear, when people claim to, this is Christ actually coming to end the world, you don't have to believe that, hey, he might be in an inner room somewhere and you didn't know. Or that he might be out in the wilderness and you were not aware. Hey, it's as clear as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west. You will not miss it. There will be no doubt of any human anywhere that Christ has returned. That's why you don't have to be caught up in this, hey, maybe he's here, maybe he's here. I, he, he might live in Bolivia today. This is all bogus. Okay? You'll know it happened. That's what he's trying to clarify here. Here's all the signs I'm giving you about the destruction of the temple. It is not my second coming because you will know for a fact when I return. Okay? Do you get what the clarification he's trying to make here? He's trying to keep them on the right trajectory. It says immediately, uh, oh shoot, you know what? Let's deal with coming coming of the Son of Man real quick. So the coming of the Son of Man refers back to a Daniel chapter 7. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who's that sound like? That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That sounds a lot like Jesus. Now, when we, Jesus, he refers to himself as the Son of Man and he says the Son of Man coming, generally what he's re- referring to, okay, especially in Matthew, it tends to be this. But this isn't his return. Which direction is he going? He's coming from the earth to the ancient of days. When we hear Son of Man coming, we expect the opposite. Coming from heaven to earth. But that's not what he's doing. The Son of Man's direction here is coming earth to heaven. Now when does that happen in Jesus' life? The ascension. Yeah. Jesus dies. He ascends into heaven. His kingdom is established. And he will rule, rule over it. And it will never be destroyed. Yeah, that sounds like Jesus. Okay. That, that should be kind of our trigger for Son of Man stuff. Um, we can't deal with the corpse there, the vultures we gather. That's probably not a vulture. It's probably an eagle. I'll put the end times class. We dealt with that in pretty extensively. As a matter of fact, all this, we're trying to condense in about a half an hour. We dealt with it in about three hours in the end times class. So if you're interested in detail, 
because I know this rub kind of might rub against things you might have already believed or thought. Um, maybe listen to the audio on the End Times class. I'll post that for you. Okay, and then we dealt with some of the stuff in a little bit more depth. It says immediately, oh, this is what gets me right here. This is the one where I'm like, can't be destruction of the temple. Okay, where I flow right back into this got to be the end of the world. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, now, here's the deal. Like, that sounds like end of the world to me, right? The, the, the stars and such, the stars fall from heaven, powers of heavens are shaken, sun is darkened, moon will not give its light. Okay. But, let's take a look at a few things. Um, here are three p- pieces of scripture from the Old Testament. Where God uses pretty similar language. Okay, Isaiah uh, 13, 9-10, Behold, the days of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Sounds similar, right? Let's look at the other one. Ezekiel 32, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with the cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land. Isaiah 34, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention. The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling. Oh, there's that fig tree. Is Isaiah 13 the end of the world? No. Ezekiel 32 end of the world? No. Isaiah 34 end of the world? No. No. Okay. Isaiah 13 is God's judgment against Babylon. Ezekiel 32 is his judgment against the nation of Egypt. Isaiah 34 is his judgment against the nations. You see how he uses this language. God's consistent use of this language isn't end of the world. Because if we take what we're reading in Matthew as the end of the world, what happened here? Why do we get to treat this different than we understand this? Do we understand what I'm saying? We're trying to deal with Scripture healthy, in a healthy way. Okay, We have to know our Old Testament. It, it brings a lot better perspective as to what's going on around us. So what's happening here? Who's being judged? If these are all judgment language against Babylon, Egypt, and the nations, who's being judged here? The Jews in the temple. The Jews in the temple. And the, the perspective that comes with these is basically God says, I'm sending judgment against those who were against me, and I'm bringing my people back. They're being reconciled to me. That's the nature of what he's talking about here. That's where we get, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. I'm bringing my people back to me. It's not the end of the world, guys. It's a reflection of God's judgment and his call to his people to reconcile to him. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, uh, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Which generation? Any generation at some point in the future? My generation? Or who he's talking to? That generation. Let's see, does it make sense? Jesus died again, 80, 30, 80, 33, depending on uh, which historian you're talking to. Temple's destroyed in 80, 70. General time frame for a generation is 40 years. He just about nailed it. Okay? That, their generation will not pass away until the temple is destroyed. Good. Jesus is taking care of the temple. Okay? We can put the newspaper down. But watch out for false teachers. That seems to be our big thing that we can take away from here. 
He continues, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. But concerning is, uh, the Greek is peri-day. It's a hard shift in topic. Okay, it's not just a, oh, I kind of continued here. It's a hard shift in topic. You'll see Paul use this all the time. Okay, he's talking about one thing, but concerning something else entirely. But concerning, peri-day, 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 something else entirely. But concerning that day and hour. Now what day and hour are we talking about? It's our, it's our scintillaia. Okay, it's our end of the world. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay? This is the closest I could get to a, some sort of bookseller who's rich off us buying books that tell us when the end of the world is going to be. We have them for, they're free right out there. Book. You don't know. Stop that. Not one more title. Okay? No one knows. Anybody who claims to know is lying to you. There's no reason to get suckered into that. Nobody knows. If Jesus said, he went to the extent to say, only the Father knows, I don't even know. And you're like, yeah, but Stanley from Kentucky knows and wrote a book about it? Nobody knows. It's distinct from the temple. Clear signs of destruction of the temple. End of the world, no one knows. No one knows. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, here's what's interesting about this is we get our orders mixed up. Generally, when it comes to the concept of a biblical concept of rapture, we don't have time to go through all that today. And um, just know, again, smart people love Jesus. will believe in this. But we need to be careful about what we're taking in. Okay? Because look at the order here. If we think about one taken, one left. In the days of Noah, who was taken off the earth and who was left? Okay? Unrighteous were taken. Unrighteous were taken. The righteous were left. Yes? Yes. That's not a rapture order, is it? Generally, when we think rapture, we think good people go, bad people stay. I mean, those aren't biblical distinctions, right? It's just a clean way to say it. Okay? We think righteous go, unrighteous stay. That's not the order in the days of Noah. Okay? Righteous stay, unrighteous go. The same thing comes up in, uh, in Matthew 13. There's a parable of the weeds and the wheats. And we didn't spend a lot of time on this. But he says, I will gather the weeds first and then deal with the weeds. Okay? That's not your rapture order. Okay? We need to be careful. We need to be careful with how we understand those things. Because if these are proof texts for how we understand being taken out of the world before trouble starts, these won't do it. These aren't a good foundation for that. But know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That word coming, and we, we didn't talk about this um, at the beginning on the Greek words, but parousia is a word. He does switch that differently. This seems to stop talking about the Son of Man coming, like coming into his kingdom, and actually seems to refer to, second re- to his return. Okay, that's where that word tends to, uh, tends to come into play. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Then he's going to go into some parables that react to this. The big, the big takeaway from the parables that follow this, and we're, we're out of time, so we can't spend a ton of time on these, okay? But it's basically be ready. Be ready. Be faithful. Be faithful while I wait. The, the, three, um, the three parables that follow, there's one about ten virgins. Five, five are there, have their oil ready. Five do not. Here's the problem with the ten virgins. It matters who you, who you trust or how you trust. Okay? When I say I believe in Jesus, but I show up as one of the five virgins who didn't bring any oil, that really doesn't show that I believed it. Right? I might verbally agree with it, but I didn't believe it. Otherwise, I would have brought oil with me from a lamp. Okay? Five did, five didn't. 
Our belief is just not, it's not a cognitive assent. It's not, yes, I agree with Jesus. My life changes. The trajectory of what I do changes. My identity has changed because of what I believe. It's not just I agree. When I, if, I'm, if I'm tracking via the North Star, and I know that's north, and I want to go north, I don't just say, oh, I believe that the North Star shows north. I turn my boat, and I go north. That's what belief, that's pissed, it's the word. It's, that's the underlying word for belief. That's what it means. Okay? It actually impacts you greater than I just verbally agree, or I cognitively agree. The t- parable of the talents, we almost always use wrong. We always like, whoever gives more, I will give more to. That's not, first of all, it's not an earthly distinction. If you read that carefully, generally the more is actually after Jesus comes back. It's not an earthly reward. But the parable of the talent shows that it matters who you know. Because the last guy, the guy that screwed up the parable of the talents, who he says, I didn't say, I, I, he basically hid it and then brought it back and said, here's your thing back. He said, I knew you were a harsh man and you, you sow where you do not reap, or you reap where you did not sow. He didn't know Jesus. And so he reacted poorly. It matters who you know. If you know Jesus, you tend to react in the right ways. Okay? That guy reacted as if he didn't understand the character of Christ at all. And in verses 31 to 46, you get this picture of, of, of a day of judgment where there's sheep and goats and there's people on the right and the left. And it's weird. Jesus could have made any distinction here about our behavior. Calls to righteousness, right? There's plenty within the Sermon on the Mount that says, here's how you act righteously. But what did he point out? He said, those on the right, those are the sheep. You clothed me when I was naked. You fed me when I was hungry. He could have picked anything. And those are the things. He cares how you treated the least of these. It matters what you do. Your salvation is not attained by how you act. Okay? You, would, you, have no bear, you have no way to get to God without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's true. But if we think that that is the end of the story, that He does not have things for you to do, good works that He has prepared for you, and that He doesn't care how you treat the least of these, we are mistaken. Any example, and that's what he gave. Because when you fed them, you fed me. When you clothed them, you clothed me. When you went to prison, we visited Jesus in jail. That's what he cared about. Out of any example he could have given. It matters what you do. The people of God shouldn't be afraid of the end of days. They shouldn't, shouldn't be afraid of the end of days. Okay? There's nothing for us to be afraid of. And we shouldn't be reading the Bible with a newspaper on the other hand. We don't need to be afraid of the end of the world. Here's what happened. I'll give it away. Jesus will return. The description in 2 Thessalonians that talks about uh, where we generally get our rapture concept from has you lifted up to meet Jesus in the air. That's true. Okay? Because the earth will be refined. It will be restored with fire. See, it's not a victory of Satan that he sullied the earth and God has to destroy it. No. He doesn't have that kind of power. It will be restored to what God created to be because it was good. So yeah, we'll meet Jesus in the air, absolutely. And the word that describes that is where you go out and you meet a conquering king and then you come with him back into the city that he was heading into. And that will be our interaction with Christ. We will meet Christ in the air. He'll restore this place with fire. It'll be just like it's never been sullied. And then we will return with him to live there eternally. There's nothing to be afraid of. But here's the thing. We're not going anywhere in the interim. We're not going anywhere. We don't get to leave the trouble that goes on in the world around us. Okay? As a matter of fact, here's the thing. All around the world, where there is trouble, Christians don't flee. Where there's trouble, when everyone else flees, Christians go in. Where there are people that are starving, we go in with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ, and we take a meal with us. That's what Christians are doing around the world. Okay? When there's trouble, when there's tribulation, Christians aren't going anywhere. They're staying. Because that's where the light of Jesus is needed most. Get comfy. Follow Jesus. Know that it will sometimes bring tribulation. 
We can't be surprised that the Jesus who we love, the Jesus who we follow, who himself sacrificed for others and ultimately died for that good news, that we don't follow the same trajectory. It's on the table. You're not pulled away from anything. That's a real possibility. Our job is to care for the least of these, to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to bring the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ with us, so that we may be found at any time ready as good and faithful servants who stand to the right of the Father. And for as long as that day tarries, for as long as it would take to get there, we will stand faithful in His service. And the word amen means may it always be. And that deserves an amen. Let's pray.